Well, what is a great church? What is a great church? Throughout history, there's been discussion and even bitter fighting about what the church is, what it should do, who is part of the church, what the church should look like. And most recently, in Western church especially, the discussion has been whether we should just chuck the whole thing that we know today is the church and start over. Because it's too broken, it's too institutional, it's too ineffective, it's too worldly, it's too dysfunctional. So let's just chuck it. Start over. But you know what? I love the church. I love every part of it. And I think I'm in pretty good company since we know from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. I love it in all its forms. Messed up or not, getting it totally right or not, dysfunctional or not, I love it. You know, in that same verse, husbands are told to love our wives in the same way that Christ loves the church. And if we would take what's being said today in Western culture about the church, you'd have to then believe something about what Paul is saying to husbands. And I don't think Paul would advocate us dumping our wives because we're not, they're not really everything we think they should be. Or because we'd really like to start over and get a better model. And do it better the next time. I love the church in all its forms. The Bible clearly teaches that the church can be seen in three interlocking yet distinct ways. And so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 today. Find out what a great church is. And there are also notes in your worship folder. You can utilize those. But there are these three interlocking, yet I think distinct forms of the church. There's the universal church that's made up of all believers from around the world. This is often called the body of Christ. This is when we go on mission trips, we meet up with the church, other parts of the church. Just as our physical body has many parts, so does the church of Jesus Christ. And so there are local churches. These are gatherings of believers in locations all around the globe. There will be different forms and styles of worship in these churches, distinct cultural differences, a multiplicity of ways in which the teachings of Scripture are carried out, but still the church, just many facets of the same body. And then finally, there's the aspect of the church that is you, you and I. Yes, you are the church, just as local churches are part of a larger worldwide body. Each of us is a member of a local body of believers, and together we make up what's called the church, and I love the church. So given this diversity of the body of Christ, the church, what can be said then when we ask the question, what's a great church? Is it quality programming? Is it the number of members that it has? Is it the amount of the offerings? Is it a top flight band? Is it vast numbers of ministries? Is it great platform speakers? What is it? Sometimes people will leave a local church in search of a better one. So what does that mean and what are they looking for? Well, for the sake of our study today, I want to turn the question on its ear. And rather than ask ourselves what is a great church and then come up with a list of what we think it should look like. Let's simply look at this passage of scripture that I think gives us at least some of God's thoughts on what is a great church and what it's supposed to be about. You know, one of the biggest challenges I face as a pastor is knowing how to minister in situations where the level of tragedy or the depth of hurt or the intensity of a struggle 
with sin or just the sheer volume of life challenges is so high that I honestly often do not know what to do. Now, that's probably not a wise thing to say in front of the people who pay your salary, that I don't know what I'm doing. But it's a challenge. How do you help hurting marriages? How do, what do I do to minister into the life of a family who is out of work? What about those who have addictions that seem unfixable? What do, you, what do I do, what do I ask God for in the life of a family who has lost a child? Or is challenged to their core with marital difficulty? What do I say to the lady last night and how do I pray for her who comes up and a committed Christ follower says, I've been diagnosed with cancer? The list goes on and on. What can I do? What can I pray for them? How do we pray for these people? How do do we as individuals of this local body pray for these people? What do you ask God for for them? What is it that they need most? How do you pray for people who are discouraged or overwhelmed by circumstances? What is it that you ask God to do? And how do you pray when you're the person that's in the sad story? When you're the person who's in the difficulty, how do you pray for yourself? Maybe that's you today. Now, you might not be experiencing some tragic circumstance. You might just feel some low-grade, consistent discouragement. You look at your life and you are most aware of what you're not doing. You ever feel like that? You just look and all you see is all the stuff that you should be doing or all the stuff that you're doing wrong. And you want to make spiritual progress. But it doesn't feel like you're moving forward in your faith. When it comes to your struggle against sin, you feel like you're pinned to the floor sometimes. Or you try to read the Bible, but God still feels distant. You might be someone who would say, well... I'm not facing a great problem and I don't feel discouraged, but when it comes to my Christian life, it feels like I lack direction. It's like, okay, I'm a Christian, but now what? Where do I go from here and how do I measure if I'm making progress? And what is it that I should be asking God to do in my life? How do you pray for yourself? Well, I think the answers to these questions will help us answer the ultimate question, what is a great church because we are the church the answer then becomes what do we need to do that's what a great church is is found in those answers and here is a piece of great news i think this passage that we look at this weekend will have some answers for us remember this that this prayer is divinely inspired Its words come from the very heart of God. You know, I'm reminded that it's important to have good theology. What we believe about God and what we believe about the Bible and its source. You see, if we say, well, these words come from the very heart of God, do you believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God? Well, that God, through this book, is teaching us how to pray for others and for ourselves. He tells us what we should be asking for here. 
Prayer is a spiritual exercise and it is an outgrowth of our theology. Who we believe God is and what we believe he has done. In the midst of learning this prayer, I think we'll discover the answer to the question, what is a great church? You know, this passage ends with this phrase. To him be glory in the church. Now that's a great church. A church where God is glorified. It's a great universal church, a great local church, and a great bunch of people who make up that church. One where God gets total glory. So let's read Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. I'll read this as you follow along. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's prayer for the church, his divinely inspired prayer for the church. And he begins with this phrase, for this reason, in verse 14. For this reason, what is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about everything that he said in the previous two chapters in the first half of chapter 3. Theologian John Stott said the basis of Paul's prayer here is his knowledge of God's purpose. For this reason, because I understand God's purpose, now I'm going to pray this. Paul understands and proclaims God's purpose. This amazing, huge plan of God to offer and give life to us. See, the beginnings of Ephesians are, are talking about this idea of grace through faith. And that we are one in Christ. And the mystery of the gospel that has been offered to Jews and Gentiles. Paul understands that Christ has adopted men and women into his spiritual family. And through his death and resurrection, Christ has given spiritual life to the dead in sin. And because of this truth, Paul says, here's how I pray for you. Here's what I ask God for you. And again, I would say that our theology is important. Biblical understanding is important. If you don't understand who God is and what his plan for the world is, you are going to be a clueless Christian. You will not be able to measure or evaluate your own spiritual progress because you're not really sure what it is God's trying to do in the world. You'll not know what to ask him for because you won't know what he's capable of and what his desire is for you in your life. This is why at New Life we consistently talk about the three habits hope you remember what they are a daily quiet time with god a weekly time of connection with a small group and a monthly sharpening time with a spiritual partner what are these for well they're all having to do with growing more deeply in your understanding of god's word and his plan for you now something new that is brand new 
that you can learn about these three habits. If you're still confused or you're new to New Life and you're not really sure what we're talking about when we say this, you can go to enewlife.com backslash three habits. Or you can go to the pursue section on the website. And there are three videos, teachings that you can watch with a group or by yourself on each of these three habits. You can spend time with Pastor Steve as he goes into his quiet time study and has his time with God, and he shows you exactly how to do that. You can also spend time with Pastor Jay, telling you the importance of spending time weekly with, guess what, Pastor Jay is talking about, small groups, and how you can grow in Christ and your understanding of Scripture and his purpose for your life in small groups. And then if you like, there's time you can spend with me on how to connect with a spiritual partner and grow in that way. So I'd encourage you to do that. Well, that's why we talk about the three habits. Because understanding the word of God and understanding how you fit into his plan is vital to your Christian walk and growth. It's also why in September, SOMA, the School of Ministry Alliance, begins. This is a chance for every one of us to go deeper in our knowledge and our understanding of God and his word. Now, it's not the tell-all, end-all of discipleship, and it's not everything there is sitting in a class, and I absorbed all this information, and so I must be spiritual. It's not what it's about. But it is a way to help your theology. You grow in your theology because that's vital to your growth as a believer. So for this reason, this understanding of the purpose of God, Paul begins his prayer. So who do we pray to? What about this God who we pray to? Well, Paul uses this phrase. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Before the Father, in verse 14 of chapter 1, Paul tells us that we are adopted into God's family. And so we know God in a Father way. We know His love and His tender care. His plan was to save us and bring us into His family. Our relationship with God is intimate. He cares for us. He has our interests in mind and he gives us his riches. And as a good child, we submit to his loving rule because he is a father who has authority. He's a father who's in charge. You see, at the same time that Paul calls him father, he doesn't lose a proper sense of reverence before the father. He says, I bow my knees before the father. Paul approaches him in humility. Tradition tells us that the Jews would stand to pray because it was considered weakness to do otherwise. And even today, kneeling has that same connotation. To bow before someone is to acknowledge their authority. It's admitting that they have strength and answers beyond us. And so Paul is saying, no, this is is a father that I bow my knee to because he is in charge. He has a plan for my life that's better than mine. He has full authority in my life. And so I show him the reverence that he deserves. The question for us is, what's the posture of our hearts? The way we approach God in prayer shows a lot about how we view him. I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting this way. I'm sure no one else has ever struggled praying this way, but I've heard people pray this way, is that we lecture God. Kind of like he's a personal assistant or something that we're giving our list of things to do for the day and we kind of tell him what he should do. Or, or maybe we, you just don't really have time for God. 
and you barely make time for him and your time with him is more like a text message than a relationship. You don't stop and humbly say to him, I need you. I desperately need you. Or some of us are not, we're not even sure of God's work in our life and so we feel unworthy and we cower in fear and we stand at a distance. Well, how should we approach God? Well, I believe that we're to draw near as Paul did, that we bow our knee before the Father simply because Jesus has died for our sins. And we can confidently approach God in His loving kindness toward us. Still with a reverence, acknowledging that He has the answers, but understanding that He is approachable because He has come and saved us and offered us a place in His family. It even says that in this verse, that Paul bows his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Listen to these next phrases. That according to the riches of His glory, He might grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. You see, we come before a God of unlimited authority and ability. Every family on earth and in heaven has been named by Him. God has authority over all people. Every family group, every people group, each of them has come into existence by God's power and God's choice. He is their creator. He named them. He named them. To name something is an expression of authority. We know what this means. Parents, didn't you name your kids right after they were born? They really had no input. It's an expression of authority. It's why we all have bizarre middle names that we're unwilling to share with people. In my case, I'm very glad that my parents did not. They picked one of my grandfather's names and not the other one. I won't tell you what the other name is because somebody here has probably named that and I'm not going to offend anybody this morning. But it's an expression of authority. Parents, fathers, mothers have authority over their children because they name them. There is an authority structure within the home. There is an authority structure between our Father and us. You know, Bill Cosby used to say, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. That's authority. You see, for God to name all people shows his authority to name you and define you. And it says it's on earth and in heaven. This simply means that even the unseen spiritual realm has been named by God. They are under his authority and power. And this was especially important for Paul to tell the church at Ephesus. You see, Ephesus was in the city there. There was lots of black magic. They were concerned about these spiritual powers. And they were concerned for their own well-being. And so Paul says, you pray to a God. This prayer is going to a God who has all authority over everything in heaven and in earth. And he reigns over all. This is a God who lives in the riches of his glory, verse 16. Another statement about God's unlimited power and unlimited resources. In verse 20, it starts out with this phrase, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. To him who is able. God is not limited to or by our imaginations, is he? You know, if you can think it, God can do it. 
But there's a step beyond. He can do more than you think. Do more than you ask. Do more than, than you can imagine. Infinitely more. Vastly more than we can imagine. More than we can dream. This Father before whom we kneel has named all the families in earth and in heaven. He depends upon not your riches or your stuff, but his, the riches of His glory. He is able to do far more than you can imagine. This is the God to whom we pray. You see, during Brothers Keeper prayer time each week, that is the God who we seek for one another. Why would we not want that God to enter into our situation and begin to work for His glory, with His riches, in a way that we can't even figure out how to ask? Well, what should we ask for? If that's the God we got, what should we ask for? If that's the God to whom we pray, what should we ask for? Well, I think we often want God to do something outside of us. So we pray prayers like this. Change my circumstances. Change that person. Please, God, change that person. Take them out if you need to. Change that person. Change the stuff around me. Change my country. Change this. Make this different. Change my outside circumstances. Well, those aren't wrong requests, but it's interesting that Paul doesn't pray those things. He could have prayed for Ephesus to change, couldn't he? God, change this city. He doesn't say that. Instead, he focuses on the inward work of God. Look at these phrases in verse 16. It says, Grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit where? In your inner being. Verse 20. Says that he's praying this according to the power that is at work where? Within us. Within us. What we need more than different circumstances is a change inwardly of spiritual power and strength. An understanding that we can receive spiritual power and strength inwardly in order to deal with the circumstances that come into our life. Verse 16, he asks this, he says this, that you be strengthened with power. In verse 17, he, said, he asks that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In verse 19, he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Those are some good prayers, huh? See, these are really all the same requests. They're three ways of stating the same thing, not different levels of spiritual achievement. You know, in reading this week, I, one commentator I came upon said, well, these are, these are steps, and they're, you go up them, and they, they increase, but then that just didn't make sense to me. Because then it just becomes this kind of Boy Scout merit badge kind of thing going on. And we end up with situations, hey, Bill, how you doing today? Well, I'm feeling strengthened with the power but I don't feel filled with the fullness. Really, man, you know, I was not feeling so filled with the fullness, but I'm struggling with this uh, Christ dwelling in my... You see how they interlock? That Paul is praying for us, and we can pray for each other. That we be strengthened with power. That Christ would dwell in our hearts, and we would be filled with the fullness of God. These are expressions of the same desire. Here's what Paul is praying for. That God would be dwelling in them. That 
they would be joined to Jesus and experience deeper union and fellowship and greater understanding of Christ's love on the cross. That they would understand the love that Christ showed them on the cross and be strengthened from within because of that and filled with the fullness of God. It's a prayer for more. More of what they have received when they came to Christ because we know that they received the Holy Spirit when they came to Christ. In chapter 1 it says that they're sealed with the Spirit. And as a believer, Christ was already dwelling in them. But there's more, Paul says, there's more. There's this understanding, this deep understanding of the Holy Spirit working within you. Not something outside of Christ, but more of Jesus. See, in chapter 1, he teaches them and reminds them that they are in Christ. That they are completely dependent upon him for their union with Jesus. But now he says they are dependent upon him for their ongoing growth in Jesus Christ. We must trust and depend upon and have his power. You'll only grow in Christ. You and I will only grow deeper in Christ when we understand and have a closer union with Jesus on a daily basis. So that's what we're to pray. Well, how does God accomplish that? Well, the key is this union with Christ. But that's kind of mysterious, isn't it? Kind of hard to figure out. Well, how's that work? And even in the first part of chapter 3, Paul says this is a mystery. Some of what God's up to is a mystery. Yet we learn in verse 16 that it says it is through his spirit in your inner being. His spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit, the one who convicts and who conforms us to be more like Christ. Who gives us a new desire. Who gives us new strength. Who builds in us a desire to become more holy and conform to Christ's image. If you want to grow, if you want to grow as a Christian, you cannot do it apart from the Holy Spirit. People can have, you can have biblical knowledge, but if there is not a humble dependence upon the Holy Spirit, it is meaningless. Salvation and growth is completely independent on the supernatural power of God to transform us. Not upon what you and I do, but what he does in us. Well, this is really the essence of what it means to be spiritual, isn't it? Today, that word is used to describe little more than vague sentimentality. And on any given afternoon, you can turn on your television and hear some talk show host talk about spirituality. But in scripture, spirituality always refers to that which is of the Holy Spirit of God. And nothing else. You cannot be spiritual without the spirit. The bond of the union is the Holy Spirit himself. It's him. He is the glue by which we are held in Christ. What's really going on? How do we get filled with more of the spirit of God and him dwelling in our hearts? Well, Paul answers that question. He's saying, I pray that you will experience this infilling of the Holy Spirit. That you'll experience the power of Christ On the cross, that you will understand his love. Well, how? Well, he says in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being what? Rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. Paul is simply saying you need to deepen your comprehension of the love of Christ for you. If you're longing for more of God's work and more of his power in your life, You know, it can get confusing in being able to figure that out, can it? You hear about it, but how does that work? 
How do you measure that? Do you wait for an emotional Holy Spirit moment? Do you, is it an experience? Well, that's confusing and vague. And then somebody else gets something and you don't get it. And Maybe that's just me. No, it's a deepening of a comprehension of how much Christ loves as we comprehend what he has done for us. The deeper you go in, the more strength you'll know in your life. It's just knowing how deeply Jesus loves you. You say, well, that's it. It took you that long to get to that. I know that. Jesus loves me. Learned that in kindergarten. Thank you. Okay. Oh, but if that's our response to the love of God for us, doesn't that reveal something about the depth to which we really know and understand his love for us? Yeah, I know that. Well, if you think you figured it out, then you need to cry out to God and ask him that you be amazed. You know, we sing the words, but I don't think we actually live it. I stand amazed in the presence of this one who died for me. Your love is amazing. It's from the inside out. But, oh yeah, I got that. But how are we living You see, this prayer is that they would, even in a small way, comprehend how massive God's love is in Jesus Christ. Verse 18, it's a very interesting word in verse 18. says that you may have strength to comprehend. He doesn't ask that they comprehend. He says that you can even have the strength to comprehend. Why do they need the strength to comprehend? Because this is heavy-duty stuff. This is massive. We cannot come along with our little tape measure and figure out God's love and say, I know about God's love. I got it. No, you don't. We haven't seen it all. It isn't just words on a page or words in a simple song. It is a loving God showing his massively deep love for you and me. And we should get a hold of it so that we can stand in awe of it. We should pray this prayer for each other and ourselves. God, grant me to be strengthened with your power. That I might be rooted in the truth of your love. That I might comprehend it. Would you give me strength because I'm weak and I can think I have it, but I don't have it. I want to see more of what you have done for me and more of what you want for me. You know, why do we have crosses in this building? They're not just nice pieces of furniture or beautiful pieces of artwork. They should be reminders to us of the cross. Not just the cross, but what was done on the cross. And the sacrifice that God himself made for us. You see... Oh, I get that Jesus loves me. Do you? Do we get that Jesus loves us? Do we get that a holy God himself came and was brutally murdered on a cross for us, for you? After last night's celebration, somebody came up and said, you know, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, 
hit him. And I said, well, you understand that that's probably only really a small percentage of the reality. Because while we saw the physical reality, do we have a grasp of the love of Christ in the rest of the reality? In the fact that Christ hung on a cross, bleeding and dying, carrying upon him not just the physical weight of the pain, but the weight of every sin that had ever been committed, was being committed and would be committed. For every person who had lived, was living and would live, was on his shoulders on a cross for you and I. Do we get that? Do we see that that bleeding body was given for us? That it isn't some ethereal story Something that kind of happened and we kind of are allowed to forget about it. We cannot forget the cross. We cannot forget what it was for. You know, in this cross in our baptistry, there's a simple little piece in the center that's the leaves that represent new life. And it's not just there artistically. It's to remind us that it was for us that he died. That it was we who deserved to be crucified on the cross and yet he took our place and he carried the burden of our sin. We cannot forget the massive love of Christ when he shouted, it is finished. The sacrifices are done. The bloodshed is over. This is it. It is final. This is my love for you. to know more about how deep the love of Christ is for you. That small, finite, meaningless little creatures who God created were drawn up into the presence of God and welcomed into His family as sons and daughters of God. And that He is drawing people and saving people and bringing His family from every race and every tribe and every nation to make a true cross culture. You see, we talk about the cross and the blood all the time. Why? Because in the cross, we see the love of God displayed. He did this for us. But it can become too familiar to us, and so we need to cry out. God, grant us more of your Holy Spirit. Don't let this become familiar. I want to see deeper. I need you to ground me in the love of Christ. So where do you need God to work? Is it a trial or a relationship? A loss? An area of sin you continue to battle? Here's what you need. Here's what we can pray for each other in those situations. Here's what will make us a great church We need to see more of how much God loves us and what he's done for us in Jesus. Not to change our circumstances, but to give us a deepening understanding of who we are in him. See, because only then, then it doesn't matter what we lose or what we have or don't have or what is going on in our life. We still know that my redeemer lives and that he came to save me. And we will never then question his love for us Because that was proven once and for all and finished on the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the spirit that brings life to our hearts. 
and this spirit who will bring glory to the church. In my backyard, I have this bird feeder, and I uh, recently purchased, because it was on sale, don't do this, it was on sale, I purchased a lot of this certain kind of bird seed that I found out only the wrens like. No bird that I really want to see is in my backyard. Well, what they'll do, they'll, they'll gather in these, it's seemingly hundreds of these wrens will swarm to this bird feeder and shake it and all this stuff. I think they're dumping more of it on the ground than they're actually eating. But here's, what's ha- here's what happens. I'll go out to work in the yard and I'll find all these little sprigs where all this bird seed fell. And I spend a good amount of time now just, well, here's how I pull them. It's really tough. You know, they have a root system about a quarter of an inch long. I was doing this the other day and it hit me that this is the way that those who never take the time to study God's word with the power of the Holy Spirit in them and they never deepen and never look and understand the atonement and justification and the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and they're not rooted in the love of God for them. And so if that's you, it all becomes fuzzy. And so when struggle comes, you're plucked up fast because it just fell to the ground. And it's easily plucked up. And trial comes and there are no roots. And you doubt God's love. And confusion and discouragement and all kinds of lies set in. So our prayer should be, fill me with your spirit. Not just with Not just to see the words on a page or doctrine in a book, but root me deeply in your amazing love. And so we come to the final question. What's the ultimate result? What's the ultimate result of getting this understanding of the the massiveness of God's love for us and the power of the Holy Spirit and the fact that what he has done is broader and wider and deeper and higher than we can even imagine? Well, we find this in verses 20 and 21. And interestingly, it's not an inward focus just for you and your own spiritual walk. But that we can begin to live a gospel-centered life that will change the world when we are rooted in the love of Christ. See, this is the gospel that Paul laid down his life for. He knew it wasn't about him. That it was about Christ and him being glorified in coming generations. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. To him be glory in the church. You see, the church only comes alive when we love as Christ loves. When we live in the power of his Holy Spirit. When we can forgive and can overcome and we can be powerful. We're transformed and changed by this. And the love of Christ in the gospel changes everything. And as we're rooted deeply in Christ's love, as we hold on to its vastness, as we live in this truth, then, then we will see God's glory in the church. And we can pray, God, by your spirit, root us in this love. Let us comprehend how great your love is so that you will be glorified in the church, in your church, today 
and in coming generations. May that be our prayer today. May we pray that God's Spirit would root us in His love. That we would comprehend this massive love, the height and the depth and the breadth of which we cannot comprehend, so that He will be glorified in the church today and in coming generations. I'm going to ask that we bow our heads and I'm going to ask nobody to move. The roast can wait. I believe that God would ask us to begin this prayer today in this place. That we would cry out to God together from this place that by His Spirit we be rooted in love. That we comprehend how great His love is. And that He would be glorified in His church today and in the generations to come. God, do this in our midst. God, we love the church and we want it to be all that it can and should be for you. God, if it is broken, then heal us. If we are ineffective, then use us more deeply. If we are too worldly, then make us holy. If we are dysfunctional, Help us to realize that all of how we should operate is in you. God, be glorified. Help us to understand the filling and the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. Help us to not forget the depth of your love shown to us on the cross. Help us to be obedient. Help us to pray this prayer for ourselves and for others who are hurting and going through trials, God, may we remember you in the midst of it all. I feel like God would ask us, as I said, to begin this prayer today. And so the band's going to play and sing a song of, of what they desire God to do in this place. And as they are, I'd ask that we just join together at these altars, that we fill these altars with those of us who desire to say to God, we want to know your power. We want to be used by the Spirit of God and filled with Him. We want to understand and comprehend the love of Christ on the cross. We want you to be glorified in the church, the church universal and the church local and in me as an individual part of that church. I believe God would have us start that in these moments 